Welcome to Ohio Matters, the Cleveland.com politics podcast. I'm Seth Richardson. I'm Andrew Spias. I'm Mary Kilpatrick. And welcome to this bonus episode. We are recording from the Cleveland Public Library. Special thanks to them as always. And again, if you have any feedback or want to hear any guests uh, or make some suggestions, email me. I'm at srichardson at cleveland.com. Again, that's srichardson at cleveland.com. We wanted to share an interview that we did with Jerry Springer a couple of weeks ago. A lot of people might not know that he is connected to Ohio politics. Uh, he joined us via Skype for about a 20-minute sit-down and promised he'd come back for a more in-depth interview. But for right now, we wanted to make sure that you got a chance to hear him. So here is the interview with Jerry Springer. Jerry, thank you so much for coming on Ohio Matters. Well, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. So we wanted to talk to you because we thought some of our listeners, you know, they probably know you from your show and your, you know, celebrity, but they might not know that you are involved in Ohio politics uh, pretty regularly. So uh, I was wondering if you could just give us kind of a rundown of, you know, how you stay involved and why you stay involved in Ohio politics. Well, I, uh, you know, my adult life started in Ohio. Uh, I graduated law school back in 1968 and, uh, I was recruited by a, um, a law firm in Cincinnati. So uh, I first worked for Bobby Kennedy, and then after he was assassinated, I took the Ohio bar, and I came to Cincinnati to start practicing law. But back then, I was—I got involved pretty early in the civil rights movement, in the anti-war movement, and uh, so even though I came to Cincinnati to practice law, I was still politically. I mean, that was my passion. And so in 1970, I uh, decided to run for the U.S. Congress as an anti-war candidate. Uh, when I announced I was 25, so which is just old enough to be in Congress. And uh, the idea was not that I would be elected to Congress, but that Cincinnati was a very conservative community at the time. And the person I would be running against in the general election um, was on the Armed Services Committee. Back then, we were called Hawks and Doves. And he was a hawk, and um, his name was Don Clancy. And uh, so I ran in the Democratic primary uh, just to raise the anti-war issue. And uh, there are two things about that particular race in, in 1970. The primary uh, was on May 5th, 1970. The significance of that is the day before May 4th, 1970, was Kent State. And that was the day that, of course, the four students were killed on the campus, you know, in the midst of demonstrations against the war, etc. And there was such outrage nationally, as well as obviously in Ohio, about, you know, here we were killing our own kids uh, over this war that the next day people came out to vote for the anti-war candidate. So I'm convinced that's the reason I won the Democratic primary the next day. The person I beat was a fellow named Vernon Bible. So I headlined one of the papers there was the next day was Springer slashes Bible. Oh, no. <laughs> that got my political career off on the wrong foot, of course. But anyway, that's uh, how I got involved in Ohio politics. So I won the primary. The general election was really close, but I had no, you know, I wasn't, you know, best qualified to be a congressman. I was only 25. I didn't know. I just knew I was against the war and that kind of stuff. And 
So um, I lost, but uh, Jack Gilligan was elected governor of Ohio. And um, he called me up a week or two later and put me in his cabinet as a state youth director. And that's how I got into Ohio politics. And then a few months later, the Democratic Party in Cincinnati came up to Columbus to talk to the governor and say, you know, send Jerry back. We'd like him to run for city council because if city council elections in Cincinnati are at large elections. In other words, everyone runs citywide. So if I would win that seat, the Democrats would have the majority for the first time almost ever. And that would give us a Democratic mayor. And that's exactly what happened. And then a few years later, I was you know, elected the mayor of Cincinnati. And so that's my tie to Cincinnati politics. And I stayed active ever since. Go ahead. Why do you continue to remain involved in Ohio politics? I mean, you're a huge name nationally now. So why do you stay involved? Well, you know, I lived in Cincinnati for 30 years. And, you know, that's you know, that's where I met my wife, and uh, that's where our daughter was born, and I mean, that's where my life has been. Um, so I owe everything in, in terms of a community to um, Cincinnati, and, and I got active then, and I've stayed active since. I just think it's, I'm an immigrant, and I just think it's important. You know, I have that immigrant uh, philosophy of, we really believe in the Statue of Liberty, and I just believe every citizen should do something politically um, to invest in this country. And since Ohio is where I've had a political base all these years, this is the, you know, this is the state where I, I do most of my political work. So, I, you know, I'm not doing it so I can be in office. Obviously, I haven't been in office for 30 years, but I just stay active and support candidates and causes. I'm pretty liberal, so it's you know, usually left of center is where my politics wind up. And uh, I do what I can to support that. And I have my own podcast now, which is a weekly political podcast. Um, so after they listen to yours, maybe they could just Google Jerry Springer podcast. <laughs> so uh, Donald Trump is president, which I think was predicted by the Simpsons at some point. Uh, Oprah had her whole, I guess, I don't know if it was requited, <laughs> but uh, sort of the uh, her flirtation with possibly running for president. Do, do you think that, uh, given some of those types of things that are percolating out there, that this is the era of celebrities running for president? Well, throughout American history, um, almost every time we elect famous people to be president, simply because if you're running in a country this large, you have to be well known. The first three quarters of American history, the famous people tended to be uh, military heroes, generals. I mean, we went through like a 50-year period where everyone running for office had a military history. And, uh, you know, whether, it's, whether it was Tippecanoe and Tyler too, you know, whether it was the, uh, the Civil War or then the Mexican-American War, the Spanish-American War, and uh, World War One, World War Two, obviously Eisenhower. John Kennedy, you know, um, everyone running for president earned their military stripes. And that was how we viewed it. Well, times have moved on. And now in this era of technology, social media, the impact of television, etc. Um, you know, Ronald Reagan, 
the people that become famous in our society, not so much generals anymore, but people that are celebrity figures, whether it's from the movies or from from t- television. So I, I'm not shocked by it. But there's something else that's going on. For the last 40 years, we have raised two, three generations of Americans to believe, ever since Ronald Reagan, to believe that uh, government is bad, that government can't solve problems, that government is the problem. And, you know, which is what Ronald Reagan said, and then I'll get government off your backs. It used to be in American history if that there were problems, whether it was the Depression or world wars or whatever, if there was a problem, government would come up with a solution. We would, go, we would turn to our government to help us. But since 1980, it's been now anyone in Washington is terrible. Anyone in part of the government is terrible. Every political commercial you see of either party um, is how the other guy's a bum, the other guy's a crook, the other guy ought to be in jail, the other guy's a child molester. In other words, we have raised children to grow up and believe that anything having to do with politics, politicians, Washington is horrible. And if you put that together with the idea that we're only going to be able to elect people that are well known because it's so expensive to run for office, that it shouldn't have been unthinkable that at some point we would elect a celebrity who was against government, who was against Washington. Now, did we know it'd be someone like Trump? Of course not. But the idea that it'd be a famous celebrity running against the government, the handwriting was on the wall, and it's been on the wall for, as as I said, the last 40 years. And so now we've gone to the extreme and we got a Trump. And obviously with the negative consequences of that, I think we may back away from that, you know, come the next election or two. But um, that's how we got to where we are. Um, So on on paper, I guess there are some similarities between your political trajectory and uh, kind of Donald Trump's personal background. And in your case, uh, I was reading through some old Plain Dealer stories about when you um, or people were discussing you possibly running for governor in the 2000s. And they mentioned your, your, your show that you were on. And so you were um, somebody who maybe your uh, connection to the entertainment industry was sort of a liability. Donald Trump on paper has some similarities where he was able to leverage his entertainment pa- background into elected office. Uh, why do you think that Donald Trump was, was kind of successful in making that transition, whereas you've had your challenges in doing so? Well, I never tried it. Um, I mean, I decided not to run. So we don't, you know, I, I don't know that there's a conclusion to that. Um, you know, there's some evidence now, if I had done it based on people willing to vote for Trump, that, yeah, I would have been successful even in this past election, in this past year, uh, the Democratic Party there, you know, there was a push to see that, that I would run for office. I have no idea what the outcome would be. You know, polls might suggest that I would win, but that's not the only consideration. The difference is I started out in politics. I went from politics to entertainment. Trump went from entertainment into politics. And the what Trump was able to do, he didn't have any of the liabilities of having been a politician. In other words, he could say, 
I've never been a politician. I've never, you know, and he could go from that angle. But remember, before we get too excited about the Trump thing, you know, he lost to Hillary by three million votes. Now, I understand under the rules, the um, the Electoral College voted for Trump. But the American people, in turn, by three million votes, voted for Hillary. So in trying to analyze where America is today, you can say that legally Trump is the president, no question. Uh, or unless something comes out with a Mueller investigation. But let's assume that the election was on the up and up. You know, Trump is the president under the rules, but he's not a reflection of what America wanted. America voted for Hillary. And so I think when we discuss it, we got to keep that in mind. But again, Trump went from show business to the world of politics. I went in the other direction. And other than we both have, a, have had a career in show business, my politics, you know, are so opposite of Trump's that, you know, I, you know, I was half jokingly saying, you know, I can be the Trump without the racism. Um, so it's a different, you know, it's a different circumstance, though I understand why the question gets raised. You know, I'm curious, what do you think about the media climate today and how have things changed? Do you think, uh, how did we get here uh, as far as the way people interpret what the media does, the way people feel about the media? What do you think? In 20, 30 years ago, when the media came to be, when the television grew, starting in the, I guess, by 1959, that was the first year that most Americans had a television set. And in the beginning, unlike newspapers, newspapers have always had a point of view, which they would exercise bringing the editorial page to the front page of the newspapers. So historically, newspapers have always been either a Democratic paper, a Republican paper. They've been back in, uh, you know, the turn of the 20th century uh, newspapers taking the side of we ought to get into the war, newspapers being isolationist. Newspapers have always been that. But when television came to be, you had to have con some sense of order because otherwise TV stations would mix up their signals. So the FCC came to be and said that we have to designate certain frequencies to our network television. So for the first decade or two decades of television, there were only three networks. And so therefore, all of America got its news from only three entities. And in the beginning, it was really CBS and NBC. And because there were only three outlets for this medium, which now everyone was getting a part of, to get their news from, there was a ethic in broadcasting to be absolutely nonpartisan. In other words, even if local stations had editorials, the editorial couldn't be by one of the news people. It usually was a station manager or a general manager would come on a couple of times a week and give his or her point of view. But television had to be as objective as possible. The major news anchor back in that era was Walter Cronkite. And Walter Cronkite would end every broadcast by saying, 
And that's the way it is. This the 23rd day of January, 1900, and whatever. And that's how he would do it. That's the way it is. And everyone took that as gospel. Well, then in 1980, we started to get cable. And cable television didn't have to worry about the FCC. So cable television can start to have an opinion as newspapers always had an opinion. And Roger Ailes, the genius that he was in terms of how to sell broadcasting, decided to take a network and have a political point of view, become the mouthpiece for the demographic we used to jokingly refer to as angry white men. And the businessman driving to work in the morning, you know, or that was who they went after. And it became very, it became Fox News. And Fox News used to tongue-in-cheek saying fair and balanced, when, of course, it had no intention of being fair and balanced. It had the intention of promoting a conservative point of view. Once, you know, and then you get MSNBC, and that gets to be the liberal point of view. And all of a sudden, television lost its compulsion to be straight down the middle. And all of a sudden, it started to have a point of view where conservatives would watch Fox, more liberal people would watch MSNBC, the people undecided would still watch CNN, and that's the, gen I'm generalizing, but that's the area in which they tended to do their, have their profession and their work. And that is how we got to where we are today, where people, and now you add to that the social media, where everyone can have an opinion and make it known by the world immediately, and put forth any kind of a story, any kind of a rumor, make up false stories, get people to believe it, because people like to watch the news they agree with. You, most people don't want to be in a confrontation. You, you like being around people where they're nodding their head yes while you're talking. People like just feel better when their friends and the people around them agree with them. No one likes to be told that what you're thinking is really stupid. <laughs> so we've gone into our tribal groups to get our information, to back up what we say, whether it's true or not. And I think that's where we have the division that we might not have had in the early days of television. And speaking of the tribes, you uh, mentioned that you're very liberal and very active in the Ohio Democratic Party. They haven't done so well in the past couple of elections here, and I'm wondering, what do you think the Ohio Democratic Party could do better? Um, well, you know, you have good, if you have really good candidates and stick to our positions, we can't, I believe, and this is just my opinion, the Democratic Party cannot try to be Republicans light. We have to be consistent with what our values are. Even if at from time to time, it might even mean losing an election. We have to stand for something. And I think right now, the division, and this is a great generality, and there are obvious exceptions, but I would line people up on those who believe the Statue of Liberty is the symbol of America, and those who believe the symbol of America should be a wall. Those are the two Americas right now. Do you believe in a multicultural society? where we as a society have a moral responsibility and to 
be an open society, to not be prejudicial, to recognize that some groups have advantages over other groups, to give everybody an opportunity to believe what the Statue of Liberty says. Everyone should have a shot in this country. You know, that it can't just be the country for the rich and for the powerful. We've got to be concerned, and I think as a Democratic Party, we have to be concerned with those that don't have power. That are, you know, I would argue we can't be a country where, you know, we have a president who says, you know, we're going to deport the Mexicans, we're going to um, disenfranchise African Americans, we're going to discriminate against various groups, not be for women's equality, stuff like that. And that's really the, you know, it's the difference between the party is not what kind of tax law do you pass, what kind of particular piece of legislation. There can be differences on that. But right now, we're having a fundamental debate in this country about what America stands for. We are the only country in the history of the world, I'll repeat that, the only country in the history of the world to be created by an idea. Every other nation started out as a tribe, started out as a group of people of a particular race, a particular ethnic group, a particular religion. They had a piece of land. They wanted to expand, maybe have access to waterways. They wanted to become a kingdom or an empire or whatever. That's the history, thousands of years, of every nation that exists in the world except the United States of America. We started out as an idea first, as articulated in the Declaration of Independence, as manifested in the Statue of Liberty, that this would be the one place on earth where it wouldn't matter what your religion was, it wouldn't matter where your parents were from, what ethnic group you are. This would be a place on earth where you could come, be free to express your own beliefs, your own religion, pursue whatever career you wanted to have, and you would have equal opportunity. That's the idea, America. And that's why cemeteries around the world are filled with a, a, a young American men and women who gave their lives for the idea, America. If we destroy that idea now and say, ah, we were only kidding. America is not special. We're going to build a wall and be isolationist like every other country. We don't care anymore. Then you have to ask yourself, why did we let our sons and daughters fight and die for America if we don't even believe in America? Well, all right. I believe you've uh, got to run here pretty quick, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yeah, run for president. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> Would you ever—oh, I guess you're, you're from England, so I guess you can't run for president, right? No, I left England when I found out I couldn't be king. <laughs> I ticked off. Yeah. Well, Jerry, wanted to thank you for coming on okay. here. Um, hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Good luck. And, uh, and people can catch you on uh, your podcast, Tales, Tunes, and Tomfoolery. That's every Tuesday, correct? Yeah, that's when we do it live, but you can listen to it anytime. Just Google Jerry Springer Podcast. All right. And, well. uh, it's a little bit music, a little bit comedy, and then I do my political rant, which you just heard. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks, guys. Do you get Capital Letter? It's the must-have daily read for statehouse happenings. Five mornings a week, Cleveland.com provides a daily intelligence briefing filled with succinct, timely information. It's perfect for people, businesses, and organizations that care about decisions made by lawmakers, the governor, and all of state government. From breaking news to rumblings in the rotunda, if you're not getting Capital Letter, you're missing out. 
For more information, visit cleveland.com slash capital letter. That's cleveland.com slash C-A-P-I-T-O-L-L-E-T-T-E-R. Did you know that one in six Northeast Ohioans struggle with hunger? Unexpected expenses, prescription costs, and rising heat costs are all things that can prevent people from being able to put food on the table, and they are forced to make difficult decisions that often result in hunger. But you can help with the Greater Cleveland Food Bank. Each dollar that you donate to the Harvest for Hunger campaign will result in four meals. Donate today by visiting harvestforhunger.org. Help feed your neighbors. Cleveland.com is a sponsor of the Greater Cleveland Food Bank's Harvest for Hunger campaign. That was Jerry Springer joining Ohio Matters via Skype. If you want to listen to more from him, you can hear his podcast weekly. It's called Tales, Tunes, and Tomfoolery, and it records live in Ludlow, Kentucky. As another treat for this episode, we decided to catch up with Cleveland.com Washington reporters Steve Kopp and Sabrina Eaton. There's a lot going on there, and we figured our listeners would want to hear about what they have to say. So they joined us via Skype for uh, about a 20-minute interview as well, and here's that. Eaton, Steve, and Sabrina, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having us on. So we thought it would be important to have you on just to kind of check in and see what you guys are seeing out there. How do you think it's going? Um, you know, Any thoughts? It's an exciting time in Washington. It's an unusual time in Washington. You know, in the old days, you'd have uh, a lot of busy activity, and then you'd have inaction for a while. There's there's no inaction anymore. It's it's because of the president, of course, uh, who's unpredictable. And so, you know, uh, America's uh, also much more fascinated with policy and politics, I think, a lot more than any time I can remember. Uh, so, uh, it makes makes life interesting day in, day out. It's like a reality show around here with just, you know, nonstop craziness. Uh, but it, it keeps us employed, and uh, I think it's definitely absorbing the attention of the American people. Sabrina, it's interesting you mentioned that sort of reality show vibe. I've heard that as kind of a criticism. I mean, what what is it that's so you know, completely different about this administration than from other administrations? Well, I'd say that we have a chief executive who likes to communicate with the American people via Twitter without informing his staff what he is going to say or what he's going to do. Most political operations are a lot more disciplined in that they try to have everybody know what's about to happen and be on the same page with it. Um, you know, obviously, I guess, since Donald Trump is the chief executive, the calls are his to make. But he tends to do these things in the middle of the night on Twitter, taking everybody kind of by surprise. That creates a level of chaos. Also, I think early in his administration, he had a lot of people that were kind of reality show types, you know, like Omarosa, that he brought into his administration, um, which created, I think, a reality show vibe. Um, you know, and there were all these people kind of sniping at each other publicly and, and, and just not being on the same page and having a lot of kind of internal dissent that was getting out there, kind of distracting, I think, from the policy and, and the things that they wanted to implement. 
there was this perception before the tax bill that the, pre the president didn't really deliver any major legislative victories. There wasn't a lot happening as far as actual outcomes. But Steve, you've been really busy writing about regulatory actions that maybe aren't as sexy as even the reality show, but then maybe major legislation or something along those lines. So what are some highlights as far as just the regulatory action that you've seen and maybe what, uh, how would you kind of describe it in general? I think it's been, it's been a uh very impressive if you are somebody who favors the uh, uh, backing off of, of the Obama era regulation. I mean, as aggressive as Obama was with regulation, and he was aggressive, uh, the Trump administration is equally aggressive. They in, in two months, they've really changed the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. I mean, in major, major ways. They've made big changes at the EPA. Again, uh, really significant. They've changed the focus and a lot of the things that they're doing at the Department of Labor. Um, they've changed some of the rules at the Interior Department. And, and I mean, I could go on and on throughout all of these agencies. While the public's focus is largely on what Congress can and can't get done, and Congress can't get a lot done, I think this president and, and his aides are using every bit of power they have uh, in the regulatory agencies to make change. So that's why I, I think that Trump is actually a, a pretty effective and consequential president for conservatives or for those who want that conservative point of view. He is delivering. Well, but I would just say that uh, Obama, during his uh, administration, because Congress has been gridlocked, I would say, for you know several terms, uh, Obama also relied a lot on regulation. And I think that a lot of what Trump has been doing has been undoing the regulations that that Obama implemented, you know, like, for instance, uh, I believe that the DACA stuff that he is trying to undo were all things that that uh, that Obama did uh, regulation wise. And, you know, so Trump is kind of taking, you know, going to that playbook and just undoing the stuff that Obama did in many respects. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Although I, I think, I mean, if Trump succeeds, he will go further because, again, he, he absolutely has a, a uh, constituency that that wants less, less, less regulation. Um, there will come a point in time when this will wind up in the courts. It's got to wind up in the courts. And, and that will be the true test. But until then, he's going to continue to be aggressive. You know, you brought up DACA there, and I think everyone's seen that fight really playing out, especially over the past couple of months. Where are we on that? Where, what, what's happening? There is uh, a lot of activity on the Senate floor as we speak. Uh, by the time listeners hear this tomorrow, they'll know what has happened there. I believe four bills on the floor um, this afternoon. And again, you know, some of them are, are super partisan uh, one way, super partisan the other way. They can't go anywhere. There may be a compromise um, that delivers a little bit more on DACA that uh, provides uh, the money, about $25 billion for the wall that Trump wants. Um, however, it may not end the uh, the diversity lottery, and Trump wants to end the diversity lottery. It may or may not deal with with parents of immigrants as as broadly uh, as Trump wants. So it's unclear what would happen. I mean, there's been a veto threat, but it's unclear. It's also unclear whether it will get the votes because if it's getting close and it looks like there might be passage, you could get some more crossover Democrats on it. Um, but we're not going to know for a few hours. Well, and also then after that comes, it, it would have to go before the House. And that's a whole different ball of wax with, you know, different people with different concerns who seem to think that, you know, 
a lot of people have a, a very my way or the highway attitude, and uh, they're not on the same page. So even if the Senate passes something, then they'd have to get it through the House, and that's all a big question mark. It seems like there's a lot of upheaval in general in terms of our political leaders. Uh, so kind of specifically speaking about Congress, it, it feels like maybe Paul Ryan is always on the cusp, but is he going to be replaced? Are the Freedom Caucus going to let him continue um, to lead? Um, and then on the Democratic side, Nancy Pelosi's had uh, very strong control for a long time of that position, but she obviously fended off earlier on in this uh, period uh, challenges to her. So uh, some of the figures on both sides are Ohio congressmen. There's Jim Jordan on the Republican side. There's Tim Ryan on the Democratic side. Uh, how do you guys see those, those guys kind of factoring into the ongoing sort of leadership questions that I'm describing now? Well, um, I mean, the, the, the Freedom Caucus is, you know, I think that my saying my way or the highway probably is what provoked your thinking about, you know, Jim Jordan there. <laughs> and uh, the, the Freedom Caucus definitely has that attitude. And as far as letting, uh, you know, letting Paul Ryan be, be speaker, uh, the Freedom Caucus is really only about, you know, two dozen people. And, uh, you know, but they're very vocal and, uh, you know, they, they can make things extremely difficult for a Speaker of the House because the Republicans don't have such a big majority that they can afford to lose two dozen people or, you know, to, if they want to pass votes exclusively along party lines. So Freedom Caucus can... can uh, influence legislation by threatening to withhold their votes. And things have just been so partisan that, you know, mostly Democrats won't vote with Republicans, so they can kind of hold up legislation that way. You know, I don't know whether they have the the power to oust Ryan. Like, they like to say that that they do. But, you know, as far as, as, far as Boehner's departure, you know, I think he was just sick of it. I mean, he's another Ohio person who I dealt with quite a bit. I mean, he he just got sick of it after a while. And I think that Ryan may well get sick of it, too, because leading these people, uh, it's it's not a picnic. You know, on the uh, on the Democrat side, Tim Ryan did get a fair amount of you know publicity for challenging Pelosi. And I think that there is an appetite for some turnover on the top there. But whether Tim Ryan would ultimately be the person that would get it, like that would be a very big question mark because there's a lot of people who are ahead of him in the leadership ranks, you know, like Steny Hoyer, who is, you know, the number two person at the moment. You know, I think that Pelosi's not going to be around forever, but whether Tim, I don't know that Tim Ryan would be the, the new Democrat leader if Pelosi were to leave. What sort of issues have you guys been following that are important specifically to Ohio? Uh, Steve, go ahead and start with you. Well, I think I think you can go to the budget uh, and our budget coverage specifically, the story that Sabrina and I co-wrote the other day uh, for the answer, uh, because we really kind of keep an eye on what matters to Ohio. So you've got Great Lakes, the Great Lakes Restoration Initiative. You know, Trump wants to cut the daylights out of the funding. Congress won't let that happen. I think we can be fairly sure of that. So again, uh, Great Lakes issues trade. We're waiting for Trump to make a decision uh, on whether to uh, sanction China and maybe some other countries related to steel uh, and impose what could be stiff tariffs, what could prompt a trade war. Um, th this would be very, very significant. This would 
not be based on like, you know, okay, you dumped so much and therefore you're hurting us, but rather that rather the full amount of exports coming from foreign countries, particularly China, and how they have hurt American steelmakers to the point that some of those steelmakers barely make anything or, or we might rely on one or two for specific products. And that could harm our uh, our national security capability. If suddenly we get into war and we need to make a lot of ships, we need to make a lot of airplanes, do we have the steelmakers who could actually turn that stuff out? That's the basis that Trump might rule on. He's being urged to do so by Sherrod Brown, by Portman. Portman's a, a little bit more be cautious about it. We don't want uh, to have some some side effects here that that we didn't anticipate, but again, trade's a big one. Great Lakes, a uh, big one. Um, obviously, the the effects or the impact of the tax bill that was recently passed. We're all going to be seeing how that shakes out in the next while, and then what that means for revenues in in communities, especially the higher tax communities uh, throughout Ohio and throughout Northeast Ohio, because they have to respond because of the changes in, in uh, the, the, the various limits on what you can and cannot uh, take as a deduction and so on. And, and similarly, some of the things that relate to commercial development in, uh, in downtowns will be affected by that. Well, I, I'm sure I'm leaving out a lot. Sabrina, what else do we generally kind of keep an eye on? Well, I think we just try to look at anything that's coming up and, and try to see, you know, what the Ohio impact will be. I mean, in some way, you know, sometimes, you know, we can think of it ourselves. A lot of times we uh, we query the legislators we cover to find out if there's some kind of a, a big uh, impact that, that we can't think of. You know, I, I, I think you did a great job with that, Stephen. I'm okay. not just saying that because you're my boss. <laughs> one, more, one more thing, which is, is uh, which Sabrina uh, uh, absolutely would be very involved in, it, and, and I will somewhat as well, which is social services spending, the social safety net. You know, Trump's budget called for sending these America's harvest boxes boxes of groceries to SNAP or food stamp recipients. That is that is a non-starter that apparently was intended just to shake things up and get the conversation going. And it certainly got the conversation going. But that signals that they are going to want, that they being the White House and probably Republicans, because they tend to want to cut the SNAP budget. And that means cutting the social safety net for people who get food stamps. Right now, you already have to work about 20 hours a week if you get SNAP, unless you know you have a disability or or you've got really little kids. I understand the Jim Jordans of the world want to expand that and make it a uh, make you work a little bit more for that. So we'll be looking at again things like that, things having to do with TANF and the old welfare system and how there could be cuts to that. Um, Medicare and Medicaid, and that gets us into Affordable Care Act. Uh, try as they might, the um, Trump administration and the Republican Congress has been unable to unwind that. They've rolled back some things. The Trump budget showed us that they're going to continue to try to roll back some things. So we'll be really keeping an eye on that as well. An interesting political storyline this year is Sherrod Brown running for re-election as a very progressive senator in a state that Republicans won pretty heavily uh, as a swing state in 2016. What are some interesting things that Sherrod Brown has done as he's kind of trying to uh, calibrate or, or, or walk the line of being a, a senator of Ohio and, and kind of navigating that dynamic? He's, uh, he's going to be the guy for the middle class, as he has always campaigned pretty effectively, as, as I'm helping the little guy, I'm helping the middle class. We're going to hear that word. You may as well just have it on, on auto repeat right now, <laughs> middle class. And therefore, he will, in, in the context of tax cuts, for instance, you will absolutely be hearing whoever the Republican nominee is, talk about how much more money is in your pocket, whether that's $500 or $1,000. 
that's money in your pocket, and you'll be happy about that. Presumably, you will hear Sherrod Brown talk about how that's money in your pocket while that's driving up deficits, while that is meaning uh, millions of dollars in the pockets of fat cats. So he will be contrasting how the wealthy, the affluent, the corporations benefited and how the little guy could have benefited more, how it was disproportionate. He's not against the little guy getting that $500 in his pocket. He is saying, though, he doesn't think it's fair if the little guy got $500 in his pocket and the big guy got $2 million in his pocket. I, I think this will largely be an election that really deals with sort of the economy and how are we doing in the economy. That, that is uh, one area that, that the Republicans have already signaled they're going to just push really, really hard. I don't think Sherrod needs to do a lot more than, than what he normally does. Uh, again, steel, he's pushed the steel thing a lot. He pushed very hard for those uh, protections that Whirlpool recently got. Now, you could argue that will make the cost of washing machines go up. We'll see. But again, he will say, good, and that's, leading, that's helping uh, a few thousand jobs in Northwest Ohio. So again, it will be all about helping the little guy, helping the middle class. I would also just like to add on that, that, you know, throughout his career, Sherrod Brown has been very adamant about, you know, bad corporate behavior and planning about corporate fat cats. And, you know, who do we have in the White House? Somebody who's, you know, a wealthy businessman. And a lot of his uh, his cabinet people are, are also folks along those lines. Traditionally, during elections that are two years after a presidential election, there's a backlash against the president. And I think that uh, Sherrod Brown and Democrats will be trying to, to ride that wave and, you know, make Trump a, an issue. And, and he will also, you know, going back to what we talked about with, with regulations, he will be pushing at that Republican pushback and, and whoever his opponent is uh, presumably will support uh, or will have supported that, that Trump administration pushback at regulations. So... We're talking about Wells Fargo setting up fake accounts that you never asked for and charging you. We're talking about uh, banks that force you into, into uh, arbitration. You cannot join a, uh, or file a class action lawsuit, as, as uh, Sherrod would say you should be able to do. So again, these are all little guy against the big guy. And he's going to be you know, constantly saying, I am in your corner, little guy. Plus, he's the top Democrat on the uh, financial, you know, on the banking committee in the in the Senate, and so he'll probably be using that uh, podium to make the point. Real quick before we go, we're recording this one day after the school shooting in Florida, and uh, gun control legislation comes up just about every time this happens. I'm wondering, do either of you think that anything is going to come of this, you know, this time around? Uh, Sabrina, we'll start with you. This will be short. I don't think so, because why now when it hasn't happened before? And there seem to be, I mean, not not to sound rude, but I mean, there's been a lot of these shootings. And after each one, people ask, why isn't anything done? And nothing happens. I mean, there was one in in, in Geauga County and, you know, didn't happen. I agree. I think that you'll see a flurry of activity from Democrats. Uh, the president already this morning signaled uh, he thinks uh, mental health services uh you know, provide the answer. There are uh, arguably some contradictions in terms of the, the way people have approached that. But nevertheless, I think that any attempts to further regulate guns will go nowhere. All right, Steve and Sabrina, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks. Bye.